there's an easy way to solve all this. Do the studies. Show us the data. Okay? Then we don't have to have this argument. Then we don't have to deploy all of this psyops, propaganda, defamation, character assassination for those of us who are saying, hey guys, just do your job. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Dr. Robert Malone talks about vaccines, a global surge in mortality rates and the consequences of our pandemic policies. It was not grounded in the science, in true scientific data. It was grounded in false modeling from a laboratory with a long history of overestimating risk of infectious disease um, here in the UK. Uh, and uh, that was accepted as truth, consensus truth, by the World Health Organization and uh, certainly the Western nations. And it was all a falsehood. Dr. Malone says people in the West were victims of the biggest information war in world history. There was the deployment of the most amazing, coordinated, harmonized, global psyops campaign in the history of the modern world. Um, to suppress any dissension and to enforce the propaganda that these were fully safe and effective. Welcome to British Thought Leaders. I'm Lee Hall. Today I'm delighted to be joined by scientist, author and bioethicist Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Malone, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure and always a pleasure to um, have a chance to work with and interact with Epic Times. You're in, usually based in the U.S., but you're in the U.K. for a special event at our Parliament. Can you tell us a bit about that? So, as many of your listeners and readers know, Andrew Bridgen has been a, a voice in the wilderness here in the U.K., uh, in an amazing way, it's really captured the attention of the world and certainly the attention of the United States, his willingness to speak truth to power uh, and suffer the consequences in terms of the conservative party booting him out. Uh, he, he's taken a strong stand regarding uh, the, the state's willingness to obfuscate the data concerning the safety and effectiveness of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID uh, gene therapy-based vaccine technology and its impact on public health in the UK. And uh, whatever you w uh, may think of the topic area uh, in uh, all of its complexity, I think that you have to applaud Andrew for courage in, in raising the issue against incredible opposition. Uh, and so as, as you know and your listeners and readers know, Andrew has spoken out a few times in Parliament uh, to, uh, you know, amazing uh, response where other MPs have all left the chambers, for instance, uh, and yet the public is, is in the galleries, uh, you know, <laughs> beating on drums <laughs> and uh, uh, wanting, wanting to have him heard. And so the strategy uh, came to us, uh, you know, uh, my colleagues in the U.S. were, and myself, were approached about whether or not we would be willing to travel here to the U.K., in my case for the second time, uh, to support Andrew, and in particular to uh, participate in hearings in Parliament in one of the breakout rooms. Uh, so uh, we've, we've kind of gotten things organized and arranged and it's an opportunity for the British people and hopefully MPs to hear an alternative point of view from that which is being promoted by the NHS and the corporate media. Uh, of course, in the lead up to this, uh, we've all been subjected to the usual slander, defamation, character assassination, etc., uh, by uh, various uh, UK outlets, I think Daily Mail and many others, uh, um, I think the Times is going to be, if they haven't already, put out another article uh, labeling us as conspiracy theorists and far right and the usual pejoratives that are deployed in these kinds of times. Um, uh, but uh, that's that's the dynamics. Is is we are we're here to support Andrew, 
and by extension, we're here to support uh, the people of the United Kingdom, asking for data transparency. That's all we really need is uh, all of this controversy about uh, the New Zealand data that's come up because of, of uh, um, Steve Kirsch and the uh, disclosures uh, um, from this whistleblower in New Zealand that's now been arrested uh, for the crime of uh, accessing, what is it, accessing a government database with a bad intent or something like that is his crime uh, um, that he's been charged with. Uh, you know, we, we have all of this ongoing controversy over what the true adverse event profile and rate is of these products and what their true effectiveness is. And all of that would go away if governments would just be open and transparent about the data that they have. The NHS has an excellent database, and they were releasing data regularly, as you recall, um, and I think also in Scotland, that was uh, many people were relying on as some of the better data available in this very controversial and complex uh, environment. Uh, and then uh, as those data became less and less positive and less and less supportive of the approved narrative of safe and effective, uh, then suddenly those data are no longer available. Right. And, and I think that uh, in the interests of the people, in the interests of uh, allowing us to have a true, fair, and objective assessment of, of what has transpired here and settle all this controversy. Uh, what we need is is transparency. Just just disclose the data. Of course, it has to be anonymized. No one wants to know what Mrs. Smith uh, took for her, whether or not she took a vaccine. Uh, we we all of us should have a shared interest. Uh, government, NHS, uh, those uh, contrarians on my side should all have a shared interest in determining what is the true safety and effectiveness of these products because the platform technology is being is intended to be deployed repeatedly now under the, the thesis that these are safe and effective. Whatever safe and effective is. Safe and effective has been deployed as a propaganda tool. Um, this These statements, safe and effective. They never qualify what the threshold is for safety, and they never qualify what the threshold is for effectiveness. They just put out this propaganda line again and again and again. It's repeated its psyops uh, to, to repeat this phrase, safe and effective, without providing any uh, um, data to support that thesis uh, or even qualify what those words mean. Just like the deployment of the weaponized term uh, misinformation or disinformation. It's, it's important, you know, this, these terms have been uh, um, intentionally weaponized. But if you, if you look under the covers and say, what is misinformation? Misinformation is defined as any information which is contrary to the official narrative being promoted by the World Health Organization or your regional uh, health service. Yeah. Okay, so if I if they say uh, um, the moon is made of blue cheese, and I say no, it's not, it's Gruyere, uh, then I'm guilty of misinformation. And if I say it's Gruyere because I have a political agenda of uh, promoting Swiss <laughs> cheese, uh, for instance, uh, as opposed to uh, um, French blue cheese or or, or Dutch or British, uh, or British uh, yeah, right. If if, uh, so if I have a political agenda in spreading misinformation, then, or they, it's determined that there's an underlying political agenda or a conflict of interest, then that's disinformation. Okay, so these terms that are weaponized by, the, by corporate media all the time as some great sin uh, is really, uh, they're a weaponization of a general term that relates to what science should always be doing which is questioning. Um, it, is, it is, you know, all of this logic of follow the science is all uh, embedded in the thesis that there is a science, a single narrative uh, that, that establishes truth 
that is endorsed by officialdom, uh, that officialdom has the right to determine what is the science. And that's never been the way the scientific process works. So uh, there's my opening rant. The British government has uh, entered into a contract with BioNTech to do a big trial, I think up to 10,000 patients, of these mRNA cancer vaccines. Uh, yeah, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it, really. So underlying that is an agreement that was built at the World Health Organization with Margaret Liu, formerly of, of uh, Merck vaccines, and the person who kind of spearheaded Merck's program on DNA vaccines for many years. As I recall, it was uh, 2022 or 2021, there was a meeting at WHO in which it was agreed upon that this platform technology, if uh, demonstrated, they really didn't even qualify it about whether or not, you know, it was assumed that it would be safe and effective, uh, would now be allowed to be deployed for any potential application involving uh, generating an immune response without um, needing to go through the rigorous regulatory steps that would normally be required for a biologic product. So it would be assumed that the platform was safe and effective and that you could just swap in any sequence for any other sequence, okay? So true platform technology using the same manufacturing process and would fit very nicely in concept with modern capabilities to synthesize DNA and RNA, um, basically based on a computer algorithm. Uh, and so that, that has been the thesis, which is why we have literally hundreds of clinical trials now in the U.S. that have been launched for a wide variety of vaccines, including cancer vaccines and infectious disease vaccines, with very little additional non-clinical testing. Uh, that's the steps that you're supposed to do before you go into humans to demonstrate safety and effectiveness under the thesis that it's already been demonstrated to be safe and effective, and what could possibly go wrong if you swap in this sequence for that sequence. So even though it's safe and effective for one disease, so we can just use it? That's, that's the logic. That's, and that logic was uh, developed at a World Health Organization consensus meeting and has then been propagated throughout the uh, regulatory agencies, certainly within the West. Uh, and so uh, this, um, remember that uh, Moderna tried for uh, many years to develop a uh, mRNA vaccine for a variety of oncology applications mm -hmm. and failed. The company was on the ropes uh, financially. It was on the verge of bankruptcy until it got rescued uh, in, in the current situation. Uh, and had, you know, both of these companies have uh, greatly benefited from government subsidies. In the case of Moderna, <clears throat> those government subsidies came from DARPA, which is, uh, you can argue, is it a branch of the DOD or is it a branch of the CIA? Uh, but it is certainly involved in uh, capitalizing high-risk uh, breakthrough technology investments on the part of the, we could call it military intelligence uh, industrial complex. Uh, so uh, no surprise that uh, NHS and UK are partnering uh, with BioNTech. And uh, Karolinska uh, has a partnership with Moderna. There's a large uh, R&D plant there, uh, um, adjacent f physically, essentially, and has a uh, um, received significant capital from Pfizer also yeah. to advance this technology. And in the case of of what's going on at the Karolinska and, and kind of the derivatives of that, a lot of this involves self-replicating RNA, often based on alpha viruses, which is a whole separate domain, uh, that the idea that you deliver one RNA molecule into your cell, and then that essentially becomes a partially replication-competent virus. Uh, it replicates in the cytoplasm to produce high levels of RNA in that particular cell. Uh, and that's, a, that's, that's the next wave of technology that you're going to see deployed here. They're already moving into animals. So in terms of the logic of uh, applying this technology for oncology, uh, you, it, uh, to be cautious and conservative uh, and not, I mean, there are many who will make uh, fairly strident statements about the cancer risk. Uh, that's not me. Uh, I, I, 
I um, seek to uh, be the grown-up in the room and be more responsible in my communications and technically accurate and not speculate about things until we have the data or the receipts if in the case of public policy. Uh, and But I, I think that we're to the point now where one needs to acknowledge there is a risk of these products um, accelerating uh, and potentially triggering uh, um, transformation would be the technical term of cells in your body to give rise to higher risk of cancers. And uh, this gets into another domain that's recently come out uh, thanks to various researchers in the U.S. and Canada and now it's been replicated I think in a dozen separate laboratories across the world that we have a significant level of contamination by DNA fragments with these, quote, RNA vaccines. And uh, so who cares? You know, is this contamination? Is it the technical term adulteration, which is a regulatory term that normally if there was a determination that this was adulteration by statute, certainly in the United States, and I think in EMA and in, I don't know about NHS, since Brexit, it's all very murky. Um, but uh, in terms of your regulatory authority and what their policies are, uh, but it's long been the case that in the, in the context of DNA vaccines, a very closely affiliated technology, uh, that uh, the regulatory authorities considered uh, DNA fragments to be a high risk for, uh, the technical term is genotoxicity or integration. In other words, genomic damage due to insertion of these foreign DNAs into chromosomal material in both somatic cells, that would be the regular cells that comprise your body, as well as stem cells. Uh, that would be the regenerating cells that give rise to your blood, for instance. Uh, and uh, so the advent of leukemias and lymphomas, which uh, have been detected in the mouse model non-clinical studies and disregarded uh, as a artifact of some kind uh, by the regulatory authorities. And now the reports from uh, pathologists and oncologists all around the world uh, that they are seeing these unusually aggressive cancers that seem to be associated temporally, in other words, in time, associated with vaccine administration, which does not prove causation. So what we have now is probably the delivery of complexes of DNA, small DNA fragments and RNA into your body when you receive these injections. And we were originally told that the injections would go into your shoulder and it would go just to your draining lymph nodes and the RNA would be gone in a short period of time. Remember all that at the beginning? Those were all lies. And I say lies, that's a strong word, but it was known at the time that those were falsehoods. So I feel comfortable in using the term lies in that case. It wasn't an oversight. Uh, that was propaganda, trying to get the population to accept these products and to overcome their potential fears, just like we were assured that this was just a regular vaccine, it wasn't a gene therapy, etc. That was all propaganda. So in this case, it's now clear that patients who received the product I hesitate to call it a vaccine, uh, um, are receiving a mixture of mRNA and short DNA fragments. And again, to recap, historically, it's been the position of the world's regulatory agencies that short DNA fragments represent a true risk to genomic integrity and should not be so delivered. And there should be purified away um, or well characterized as to what the risk is. And uh, it appears that uh, it's, it's still unclear the extent to which the EMA, Health Canada, um, NHS, and FDA were aware of the degree of contamination. It appears, based on the correspondence, that they were not fully aware 
that these simian virus 40 derived genetic switches were present in those DNA fragments mm -hmm. because it appears that when the regulatory dossier was submitted and the map of the plasmid DNAs, this is a, a graphical representation of the structure of those and the elements within those circular DNAs, was provided to the regulatory agencies, somehow the designation that there were simian virus 40 derived sequences in that map was erased or deleted or somehow overlooked. And so right now it's, un, it's very difficult, as you probably know, to extract uh, truth <laughs> out, of, out of any of these regulatory agencies about these products, which goes back to my original point. What we need is transparency, guys. Let's just come clean, say what, what's what, and then we can all argue about the interpretation, but at least we'll have a common baseline. But uh, to the extent that we've been able to obtain commentary, particularly from EMA, Health Canada, and FDA, it appears that they are acknowledging that they're now aware of the presence of the SV40 in the Pfizer product, not in the Moderna product. Um, they are aware of the DNA, short DNA fragment contamination issue, uh, again, that was only revealed to the public because of some skilled scientists that do sequencing, um, basically um, deep sequencing, on a routine basis for other purposes, and they just ran some of these samples through and said, holy moly, look what we got here. Um, this was unexpected. Um, and then confronted these regulatory authorities who then finally acknowledged that this was the case. And we're down to arguing uh, whether or not that level of contamination that is being detected by different methods constitutes what's really an arbitrary at this point, definition of a unsafe or a safe level. Right. Uh, and that gets to this term adulteration um, and a, you know, very old term, decades old regulatory term that has to do, you know, going back in the history of the FDA to uh, the original statutory empowerment of the Food and Drug Administration that derived in part from the expose from Sinclair Lewis about the Chicago stockyards and the contamination of meat products with rodent feces and things like this. Uh, that's, that's adulteration of food. Uh, in adulteration being the presence of a contaminant which is not disclosed and in particular which has potential toxicity. So I assert that these uh, DNA fragments do meet that criteria. Uh, they were not disclosed. Uh, they are uh, potentially toxic. And the regulatory authorities appear to be just stonewalling this, saying, we assert that this is safe. It's been administered to a billion plus people. Uh, and our assessment of the data to date is that it's safe and effective. and uh, and basically taking the position, uh, there, we will have no further discussion on this topic, which is amazingly arrogant. Uh, because the norm would be, and this is my big underlying objection here, that I have two main objections to what's transpired over the last four years. I mean, plus all the propaganda and, and psyops and everything else. Uh, but if you, if you boil it down, one is the failure to provide informed consent. People should have known that these products had these characteristics, that they, they are maintained in your body for an extended period of time. They circulate throughout your body. They have a particular predilection for ovarian tissue. Um, they are toxic at some level. We can arm wrestle about what that level is and what those toxicities are. Um, and. Uh, that they are contaminated with these short DNA fragments. None of that was disclosed to the public, okay? And then furthermore, there was the deployment of the most amazing, coordinated, harmonized, global PSYOPs campaign in the history of the modern world um, to suppress any dissension and to enforce the propaganda 
that these were fully safe and effective when they had hardly been tested according to normal vaccine standards. Um, so I, I objected to that, and I object to the uh, arbitrary and capricious discarding of uh, the, the learned knowledge of decades of vaccine development, my field. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm now labeled as a anti-vaccine uh, person. I use the term vaccine skeptic in the Twitter bio. I think skepticism is an appropriate position to take for somebody who is a clinical development and regulatory affairs specialist who happens to have a background in bench research and the uh, creation of this tech. Okay, but to label me as an anti-vaxxer when I've spent my entire career developing vaccines is a little bit paradoxical. Uh, I think you can see that that, that internal contradiction, uh, but it fits the narrative. Uh, but um, in, in the normal historic situation, globally, um, in, in the harmonized guidance uh, relating to a regulatory uh, assessment of the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, one would have to characterize the toxicity of each of the biologically active components independently and in aggregate. That was not done. Uh, and if, you, if one was going to assert that this particular level of DNA contamination, DNA fragment contamination, when delivered with this particular technology, because this is the most potent non-viral gene delivery technology ever devised by man, okay? This is not what I was doing. This is not naked DNA or RNA. Um, this is an advanced version. Credit to Peter Cullis and his group at the University of British Columbia, who should have got the Nobel Prize, as far as I'm concerned, for these vaccines, but was overlooked. Um, this is the most potent delivery system ever devised, non-viral. Uh, we do have a substantial level of DNA fragment contamination. And the responsible regulatory position for a uh, regulatory authority focused on protecting public health and ensuring safety of biologic products would be to have insisted that the studies be done to determine what the safe level of DNA contamination would be when delivered with this system. Makes sense to you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, wh what else would make sense, okay? You don't just say, um, it's safe, trust me, um, when you're dealing with billions of doses. You don't say, it's safe, trust me, if you're dealing with millions of doses. If you're dealing with thousands of doses, you don't get away with that. Okay, you have to do the work to show at what level this type of contamination is no longer safe. And if they would do those studies, which they apparently haven't done because they're stonewalling, okay, so until such point as the regulatory authorities or Pfizer or BioNTech or Moderna show us the data, here it is, here's the data package. This demonstrates that the threshold for toxicity that we all agree upon as risk for cancer or genotoxicity, because normally genotoxicity studies are required. Integration studies are normally required. All of that was thrown in the rubbish bin, okay? All those regs were thrown in the rubbish bin in this mad rush to deploy a product for a virus that had a 0.02% case fatality rate, not 34 Okay, Imperial College. Um, uh, so there's an easy way to solve all this. Do the studies. Show us the data. Okay, then we don't have to have this argument. Then we don't have to deploy all of this psyops, propaganda, defamation, character assassination for those of us who are saying, hey guys, just do your job. Do the job that you've always said you, was your responsibility, that by statute, by legislature is your responsibility. Um, just do your job and show us the results. And if you show us that with this particular delivery system, this level of DNA contamination is not a substantial risk to human beings for genotoxicity, 
I, I say, amen, thank you so much. End of controversy. It's very easy to resolve. Do the work. Don't substitute propaganda for data. You've mentioned several times the psyops and the propaganda. I mean, in the UK, we've heard about this army uh, cyber warfare unit that was deployed against people who disagreed with the pandemic policies. 77. Yeah, including journalists, campaigners, even teachers. Uh, you yourself, uh, an expert on vaccines, was blocked from speaking out and was cancelled. Well, I have to, I've now had to become an expert in uh, cywar. Yeah. To, uh, basically, to make sense out of what I've been subjected to and my colleagues. Do you think we've been through an information war? We have been through the most amazingly harmonized uh, cywar campaign in the history of uh, modern politics. I don't think that can be disputed. And credit where credit's due, for those that are experts in this area, and that is their core competence, largely military, I mean, this is fifth generation warfare that has, it's a suite of technologies, in many cases led by the UK, historically, nudge units, etc. cetera. Um, a suite of technologies that have been devised for offshore combat in the modern battle space against the likes of al-Qaeda and uh, um, the Taliban. And I argue, um, of course, the history of propaganda in warfare is um, as long as there's been warfare. But the level of capabilities that modern digital technology enables has, has not been readily available in the past. Argument is that it was first deployed effectively as a test fire during Arab Spring, in which Twitter, which was designed as a weapon, a cyber weapon, um, in, you know, as Facebook has deep ties with uh, the CIA, um, Twitter had deep ties, obviously, and we've learned a lot about that with CIA and FBI, uh, changing under Elon Musk, one hopes, at least that's the veneer. Uh, um, uh, that suite of technologies is so powerful that if a government chooses to deploy it against its citizens, I argue the concept of sovereignty and personal autonomy become obsolete. They're an anachronism. And clearly, there has been a willingness on the part of the Five Eyes nations, at a minimum, this Western alliance of intelligence agencies, you know, your MI5 and MI6, uh, RCIA and FBI, uh, between UK, Canada, US, New Zealand, and Australia, some of the, um, in the, the English-speaking nations, we could, we could argue about Germany and Austria as also having gone pretty deep into uh, this kind of totalitarian response that we've all observed. Uh, but uh, that has clearly been coordinated among the Five Eyes nations. And we have uh, documented evidence, thank you to the British press, for uh, the collusion between the American CIA and uh, British intelligence to suppress information about vaccine side effects, adverse events, under the thesis that any information which would lead people to become vaccine hesitant, I mean, think about the logic here, um, the, the thesis is that any information which would cause um, the citizens of the UK to become vaccine hesitant mm. should be suppressed, whether true or not, okay? That, if you take that position and turn it upside down, this is a red, blue, red pill, blue pill, okay? That, that is essentially justifying um, a systematic barrier to informed consent. Um, it is a national policy agreed upon by the United States government and the UK government to block informed consent under the thesis that we have a highly lethal virus, false, okay, under the thesis that we have a virus with a 3.4% case fatality rate. We knew very early on this was not the case. Jay Bhattacharya did a study in Stanford for which he was ridiculed but a rigorous study that has withstood the test of time and got the right number, 
0.02% case fatality rate, not 3.4. But under the thesis that we had such a lethal respiratory virus that we had to do something or we were going to have people dying in the streets under the thesis that this was such a lethal thing that we had to get something in everybody's arm. Remember, that was another one of the talking points, another one of the propaganda points. None of us are safe until all of us are safe. Everybody's got to take the jab. Okay? Everybody's got to th uh, think about the underlying logic. Everybody's got to take the jab. Why? Because if everybody takes the jab, we will get to herd immunity. Because the jab protects from infection and spread. Okay? Those are all lies. We can never get to herd immunity with these products. That was known very early on, okay? So, and these products do not stop infection and spread. Matter of fact, there's a recent letter from the European Medicines Agency that explicitly, explicitly says that these products are not licensed for protection against infection and spread. We had the testimony in the European Parliament from the Pfizer VIP. VP, they never assessed whether or not these products were effective in preventing infection. Okay? So this was a lie. What else would you call it? Okay? They knew it was a falsehood. They repeated this falsehood. It was not grounded in the science, in true scientific data. It was grounded in false modeling from a laboratory with a long history of overestimating risk of infectious disease. Um, here in the UK, yeah. uh, and uh, that was accepted as truth, consensus truth, by the World Health Organization and uh, certainly the Western nations. And it was all a falsehood. But under, this, under the predicate that this was the case, that we had a massive national health emergency, uh, and we would have mass graves, freezer vans full of dead bodies, uh, hospitals jammed up to the rafters with patients on ventilators. Uh, turns out the ventilators were part of the problem. Uh, but, uh, and therefore, kind of anything goes. And we jettisoned our, our portfolio of learned knowledge about how to uh, determine whether a vaccine specifically or a technology platform was safe and effective. So we threw that in the rubbish bin because 3.4% case, case fatality rate, and then anybody that questioned the safe and effective narrative, which had no qualifiers, what was safe, what was effective, okay? It was just repeated again and again and again. This is psyops when you see this. This is neuro-linguistic programming. You, the lovely thing, in a paradoxical way, about all of this psy war that has been deployed on the citizenry is that we, Many, maybe it's still just a small minority, maybe it's only 5%, maybe it's 20% of the population, can now see the hidden hand that's been manipulating media for decades. Various countries have been posting quite high excess uh, mortality figures yeah. since 2021 now. Yeah. But it doesn't get much attention, and it doesn't seem many people are looking into why that is. And I wanted to get your take on all of that and why you think it doesn't get much spotlight. So there was a, an amazing self-own from Robert Califf, the head of the FDA, on Twitter the other day where he posted a series of tweets in which he was quite alarmed uh, by the sudden plummet in life expectancy in the United States uh, and uh, seemed to be strangely unaware of uh, the global surge in all-cause mortality that seems to correlate only not with the onset of the virus infection, which we've now established has a 0.02% case fatality rate, and which um, experts all over the world that are looking at all-cause mortality data from a variety of different sources are unable to detect as a blip in all-cause mortality in, uh, above the baseline noise of seasonal variation in all-cause mortality that's existed for decades, okay? So up until the deployment of the vaccines, which does correspond approximately with uh, a number of other, they call them NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as mask wearing and lockdowns, which had, you know, anything which damages the economy is associated with a increase in all-cause mortality due to suicide, depression, and a number of other things, 
You don't even have to invoke an a infectious disease. So the data are complicated and multifactorial probably about why there is a surge in all-cause mortality that corresponds approximately with the beginning of the deployment of the vaccine products. Yeah. So Dennis Ranacourt heads a team of PhD academic mathematicians and biologists that have been looking at all-cause mortality for decades. And they do it in a rigorous way. They have a well-developed database. Um, uh, um, and they have asked the specific question whether the Lancet paper that the Nobel Prize Committee based their assertion that these vaccines have saved 14 million lives, whether those data um, were a robust, accurate, and a properly computed. And uh, what Dennis and his team demonstrated, and I've linked this in my substack and it's widely circulated, uh, in anyone, they, they've done it in a academically rigorous fashion, so they make the database transparent that they're using, and they create the log file for the programs that were used to perform these calculations, which means that anybody else can go in and recapitulate and carefully examine what they actually did and the programs they used to do it and the data that they used to acquire in order to make their calculations. They have demonstrated that the assertion that there have been 14 million lives saved by the vaccines is based on actually faulty mathematics. Okay? So there is a fundamental mathematical flaw in that Lancet paper, which remains unretracted, um, that the Nobel Prize Committee cited in making their award. And then they went beyond that, having discovered this mathematical flaw. Then they applied their toolkit in examining the uh, data that they have accumulated and, and annotated uh, over decades to uh, assess all-cause mortality. And um, they document a, a minimum, uh, what they assert to be uh, excess all-cause mortality attributed to the vaccines of 17 million. So we go from 14 million lives saved, that was an artifact of bad math, to 17 million lost consequent to the vaccine, according to the Ranacourt group. Teo Shooters in the Netherlands, a colleague, has done a, a similar calculation based on real-time data in which he has acquired from his government and merged two separate databases, uh, uh, Teo being a uh, well-esteemed uh, molecular virologist immunologist. Uh, his current appointment is with uh, a South African university, uh, but he lives in the Netherlands. And what he did was he acquired data um, uh, from the government on uh, mortality over time in the elderly, because they keep socialist uh, uh, healthcare system, much like here in the UK, they keep excellent records, uh, particularly on their elderly. And uh, they do harmonized vaccine campaigns in uh, nursing homes, in elder care facilities. And so his data are constrained to, I think it's 62 and above, because that apparently is the cutoff for these elder care facilities. And uh, by merging two separate data sets, one being that of the harmonized vaccine campaigns and the uh, vaccines deployed over time, which come in spikes because it's campaigns and it's relatively small numbers. So they can vaccinate their entire elder population in a period of a couple of weeks. Um, and then uh, the all cause, excess all-cause mortality data coming from a separate government database. And he's merged those two and shown that reproducibly over multiple vaccine campaigns in this elderly population, you see a surge in the vaccination and then with something like a one to two week delay, you see a surge in excess all-cause mortality. Okay, In normal drug development and assessment in regulatory affairs and safety monitoring, you would consider that akin to a challenge-rechallenge experiment, which is the most rigorous way to demonstrate cause and effect. So the response has been from the government to basically 
uh, ignore or not comment, I think, on, on uh, Teo Shooter's data. But apparently they have modified some of their practices um, and I believe are no longer deploying the vaccine into that elder population and are certainly no longer doing coordinated harmonized vaccine campaigns. Uh, um, so we have, we have these data um, uh, from credible organizations, as you point out, uh, looking at the only reliable data that the world has access to, uh, um, which is uh, all-cause mortality. And then uh, we also have the data that Ed Dowd and his group, Ed being a stock analyst uh, based in Maui, uh, um, uh, published the book Cause Unknown. uh, and has been working with some Portuguese data scientists to accumulate all-cause mortality data largely from insurance-based databases. And it's undeniable that there has been a surge in claims uh, for, uh, I would call it morbidity and mortality, sickness and death, uh, which initiate approximately with the onset of the vaccine campaigns in populations that are otherwise relatively healthy. People that are highly insured tend to be employed uh, and tend to be younger, okay? And so the, and, and, uh, the insurance actuarial, actuarial data is quite rigorous because you have a binary endpoint. Um, you either had a debilitating disease that would trigger a insurance payout or you didn't. You either had a death it would tr- trigger an insurance payout, or you didn't. So binary, yeah. very straightforward, monitored by people who uh, live and die based on their ability to correctly analyze data. I mean, it is the essence of the insurance industry to keep a tight thumb on what are the data. And uh, they have seen this surge uh, that is greater than, here's, it's technical, forgive me, greater than two standard deviations above the mean. This is statistical talk for something that should absolutely never happen. So we're saying a lot. <laughs> Way off scale, okay? Um, in a, a relatively younger, highly employed population, which happens to be the population that was subjected to the mandates. You know, if you want to keep your job, you had to get the jab. Uh, and so those data in recognizing that Ed and his crew are not to the academic rigor standards of Dennis Ranacourt. Um, uh, they are stock analysts. That's their business is to evaluate and project trends. So they're certainly rigorous in that sense. It's how they make their money. Um, uh, um, Ed formerly being with an organization that many would recognize called BlackRock. Uh, um, and uh, in its earlier days. Uh, and so Ed is certainly highly qualified. And one of the, the uh, advantages that Ed and his colleagues enjoy is that as analysts, they are allowed to speak things uh, that I can't say because their business is to project future trends. And they provide that service to the investment community. So there's different standards for information sharing in that world. They are normally uh, empowered and as part of their business to make forward-looking projections. It's what they do. That's what they get paid for. So that the stock um, investment community can make informed decisions about future trends. Whereas I'm really, if I speculate uh, if I if I happen to be among those in uh, in the let's say conscientious objector community who uh, make statements uh, along the lines of I'm going to paraphrase we're all going to die in three years if we've taken the jab and there are statements that have been made by some along those lines uh, then I would be it would be appropriate that I would be ridiculed for having made such a statement without having sufficient 
uh, information. That would be a forward-looking statement. I wouldn't have the data to support that. And <laughs> I could well expect to be ridiculed. If you're a stock analyst, it's okay to do that because that's what you do routinely. So Ed is, is, has the liberty, Ed and his colleagues, uh, to speculate about future trends, which even Dennis Ranacourt can't do as basically an academic. And so that's a big difference between the two, and I think it's important to kind of comprehend that uh, and, and understand that they're coming from different disciplines with different standards for reporting. But uh, so Ed was out at the front edge of the data on all-cause mortality because that's what he normally does. Dennis has been um, in, a, in reacting to data as it's accumulated and processing those data, not making forward-looking projections, but retrospective analyses, yes. and the two have converged. Unfortunately, I wish it wasn't the case. I mean, I take no pleasure in the implications of the all-cause mortality data. You know, it, it would be far better if my um, warnings to the world uh, had been wrong. My goal is not uh, self-aggrandizement and fame, and I'm certainly not getting rich from this, uh, and it's not very fun uh, being um, subjected to character assassination on a daily basis uh, by the 77th Brigade or the Times of London uh, or the Daily Mail <coughs> or the New York Times or the Washington Post or Rolling Stone or Atlantic Monthly or we could go on and on. Um, uh, that's that's no fun, uh, and uh, but I would I I would welcome being proven wrong, and that this is a tempest in a teapot, and in fact, the regulatory authorities that were correct, and this was safe and effective. Um, unfortunately, for the world, the data are not showing that, and um, and. What this gets to, I'm afraid, is that folks like myself, Ryan Cole, Pierre Curie, others that are going to be testifying in support of Andrew Bridgen are being treated as enemies of the state because we are speaking inconvenient truths uh, which are fundamentally threatening to the state because the state has taken this unilateral position emphasized by the full spectrum of its psyops, psywar propaganda capabilities deployed on the world, deployed on your citizens, asserting that these products are safe and effective without having the data. So they got out ahead of their skis, to use an American metaphor. Uh, I don't know if you would use that here. I'm an okay. Yeah, so they, they, they got out ahead of the data um, uh, they had thrown away the rule book to give them the data to, to make an accurate assessment. Uh, they deployed this propaganda prospectively without having the data to support it. And it turns out they were wrong. Now they got a problem because they basically repeatedly lied to the public. And th they have also, in these actions, demonstrated to the public that they are willing to employ modern a psychological manipulation technology, much of which has been developed here, uh, on on the citizenry to advance. You know, we can all. This is this is one of these slippery slopes. We can all kind of get behind. Well, it's it's good to use nudge technology to, uh, you know, the famous case of Schiphol Airport with the little uh, enameled flies in the male urinals uh, to get males to be uh, more uh, more direct. Um, uh, and then, well, that's good. That saves money. Uh, that advances public health. Uh, why shouldn't we deploy uh, this kind of nudge technology to get people to stop smoking? Makes sense. Smoke, smoking causes deaths. Passive smoking is a risk. Nobody, if you're a non-smoker, uh, you don't like to have people smoking in restaurants while you're there. Um, uh, absolutely, for the public health, we should deploy 
uh, nudge technology to reduce uh, tobacco use. Well then, you know, what about global warming or climate change? What about um, integration of different ethnic groups? Uh, I mean, you can't watch a BBC program without, or let alone um, uh, Netflix, without being bombarded by the latest wokeism trends. Uh, and, but that's all nudge technology. That's what it is, okay? Developed right here in the good old UK uh, and, and very effective. Uh, and, and then, as I said, when a government gets to the point where they feel that it's acceptable to deploy full-on modern cywar technology developed for offshore combat against its own citizens, then their ability to come to an informed decision, whether it's about public health or it's about immigration policy or open borders or Brexit or fill in the blank, uh, they no longer have the ability to make an informed decision because with modern technology, every single thing, every bit of information that they acquire, that they're subjected to, coming through the approved censorship vetted GB News, let alone BBC, uh, is government propaganda. It has been filtered through a government propaganda lens. And uh, the technology is to the point where um, it, it can and does control not only everything you encounter in terms of information, everything you think and feel is manipulated. This has to do with the Dunning-Kruger effect, the Milgram experiment, where most people will respond in accordance with authority figure, um, so the white coat phenomena. Uh, the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect of uh, people think they're smarter than they actually are, uh, and all the ancillary derivatives of that. Uh, people, people are um, like clay uh, to be molded when subjected to uh, neuro-linguistic programming and other modern psychological uh, manipulation technologies being deployed by the government. Um, and what's, you know, I think I, th I infer that the Western governments and, and the European Parliament um, and, and, you know, Barack Obama made an explicit speech about this at Stanford at the Hoover Institute, that paradoxically, in order to protect democracy, we must have censorship. We must deploy this PSYOPs technology, uh, this, this technology designed for offshore combat to counter the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and, and, you know, name your latest group. I don't want to get into the Gaza conflict. Uh, um, matter of fact, I will. One of the things that I find most fascinating about the Gaza conflict is we have two highly, highly developed war capabilities going head-to-head -head on the world stage. Hamas and the IDF. They are both extremely skilled at war, mm -hmm. And um, they are punching it out. And you, you can see that the, the most tangible expression I've seen of that was the New York Times uh, headlines about the missile that landed on the hospital. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the New York Times was flip-flopping in real time, <laughs> which I argue is, is an illustration of the problem of corporate media that has become entrenched in the logic of uh, advocacy journalism. That old-school journalism, like the Epic Times uh, practices religiously, uh, much to its uh, detractors' um, uh, attacks, uh, in the in modern journalism, objective reporting is considered passe. And uh, what young journalists are taught now in J school is advocacy journalism, which I argue is a euphemism for propaganda. Uh, and, and what happens when a, you know, what used to be considered the publication of record, New York Times, uh, becomes captured by the logic of advocacy journalism 
is that they can find themselves on the wrong side of an issue quite quickly. They can think that the politically correct thing to take is X, and then suddenly there's a change in, uh, in the uh, dynamic of the accepted uh, narrative, and suddenly they find themselves on the wrong side of the fence. Whereas if they had been just objectively reporting the facts in the old school way, uh, they wouldn't have a problem when the narrative shifts because they're not reporting from the standpoint of reinforcing the narrative, they're reporting from the standpoint of reporting, <laughs> right? What actually transpired and trying to get to the underlying storyline of what transpired and why, uh, rather than trying to promote some narrative that advances a particular cause. It's and almost like that proper way of doing journalism was a good idea. <laughs> I, just like I think the proper way of doing uh, vaccinology was a good idea, right? We've, we've learned, it, it's as if we believe in the modern digital age that we don't have to remember the lessons that we've learned over the last decades. And we can throw them all out because, I don't know, AI, uh, transhumanism, uh, globalism, I, I don't know. Um, uh, and the old lessons don't apply. Uh, you know, it's, it's a strange position to be arguing uh, and, and fundamentally conservative in the technical meaning of the word as opposed to its distorted meaning having to do with political parties. Um, it is, is fundamentally conservative to say, uh, don't forget the lessons of the past <laughs> as we move into the future. Uh, and yet that seems to be uh, the um, logic that has been advanced. And, and the fundamental underlying flaw that has been revealed uh, with the COVID crisis. This has been going on for a very long time. And most of us have been like me, or like Pierre Corey or Paul Merrick. Um, I use the metaphor, you're in a dark room, you back into the light switch, the light flips on and you see things you can never unsee. And that's kind of the essence of the journey that many of us have encountered over the last, it's now four years, um, where I, I cannot listen to CNN or read the Washington Post or the New York Times without being acutely aware of how deep the propaganda is. I mean, this is one of the blessings of Epic Times, which in the States has risen to the point of being the fourth largest print uh, publication, newspaper, in the United States. Stunning. You know, behind Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post is little old epic times. Uh, and why? Because this startup that was originally basically a bunch of Chinese dissidents writing to other Chinese dissidents, uh, but subscribing to traditional journalism, has become uh, um, one of the few outlets other than the um, ragtag alternative media represented by the likes of Joe Rogan, which is a, you know, a, a huge threat, or now Tucker Carlson, to the Trusted News Initiative. I mean, they explicitly acknowledge it. Uh, um, Epic Times uh, represents a, a, a strange throwback to an, an earlier world uh, where um, uh, journalists believed that their mission was to objectively report on, on um, underlying truth to the extent that they could perceive it, given all of the cloud of propaganda that we're surrounded by. So I congratulate you and thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and, and to share this time with you. And, uh, um, and with your viewers and readers, um, I hope that uh, I've, I've helped convince a tiny fraction of the UK population that I am not a bomb-throwing crazy man. Uh, and I am not an anarcho-capitalist, but I find the logic of Millier and the ANCAPs to be fascinating because it's a different frame of reference uh, to look at, at our world, um, one that is uh, truly revolutionary.
Um, and I fear, as I look through that lens, that um, those of us that will be testifying today in support of um, Andrew Bridgen are being perceived and treated as enemies of the state for the crime of questioning uh, the safety and effectiveness of a mandated novel genetic therapy technology that has been deployed in billions of doses across the world. Dr. Robert Malone, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.